Welcome again to the online ministry of South Sub Church. We're so glad that you're here today. We are in the middle of a series, Stuck in the Suburbs. <laughs> and uh, this message is our fourth message in that series, and we've entitled it IKEA, Therefore I Am. I hope that you're uh, wrestling with some of the same things I find myself wrestling as we seek to prepare ourselves as a congregation for the future into which God is leading us as not only as followers of Jesus, but as a congregation and as a part of the greater church of Jesus Christ that is facing uh, what really is becoming an unprecedented time in the history of the church from the very beginning as we find ourselves, uh, pro probably the closest thing that we have to this was uh, in the Dark Ages, in the Middle Ages with the plague. And uh, uh, it has been a tremendous time of shifting that has occurred. And so I'm glad that you are here as we go into God's Word together and seek to listen to the Spirit of God, for God will always have a people. We're looking at the Gospel of Matthew today, chapter 7, verses 15 and 20, just a few verses. So if you have your Bible, I'd encourage you to turn there uh, and read along with me. I'm reading from the English Standard Version, but... Uh, this is a fairly well-known uh, passage of Scripture, so you'll get the gist of it no matter what version you're using today. <clears throat> Excuse me. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, you will recognize them by their fruits. Here ends the reading of God's holy and perfect word. May he add his blessings and his understanding to it. Amen. Well, a lot of you may feel this way. But my wife and I, we really like Ikea. Now, we like it for different reasons. My wife, she likes the highly functional and reasonably priced furniture. Of course, uh, I don't know if she really takes into consideration that I'm the one that has to put it together. Me, well, I like Ikea too. But I like them for their meatballs <laughs> in the cafeteria. It's really a landmark here in our suburbs, just uh, over near the interstate. It was actually next to the hotel that the congregation used to host my family and I when we were interviewing. Whoever was thinking of that was really good. And my daughter? Well, when my daughter found out that uh, there was an American Girl store here in our suburb, which, by the way, is closed now, she prayed every day that God would lead us to Littleton, Colorado. Today, I want us to think together about the prophets in our life. Folks who speak on behalf of someone else. That's what a prophet is, actually. Now, I know that you might think of prophets as people who foretell the future. And that sometimes happens, but that's, but that's not the main function of a prophet. A prophet simply is someone who speaks on behalf of someone else, mainly someone in charge or with power 
or with authority. Pastor Joe and I are two prophets that you listen to pretty much every week. When we were ordained, we were charged to always speak the truth of God's Word in season and out of season. And that means when it's popular and being accepted, but it also means doing it when it's unpopular and being rejected. There's a prophetic aspect of the office of pastor. Our elders, our small groups and classes teachers, our governing board all share in the prophetic ministry of the church to some degree. They speak on behalf of God, the truth of God's Word, to our congregation and to the community. I mean, even in secular situations, you have prophets there too. I mean, folks who speak on behalf of someone else. A manager who speaks on behalf of the owner of the company to you, an employee. An IRS agent who speaks on behalf of the IRS. Elected officials, hopefully, on behalf of the Constitution and the laws of the states or the nation. In our lesson today... Jesus here finds himself in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount. An amazing uh, presentation of the fullness of the kingdom of God. In the midst of this sermon, he begins to talk a little bit about false prophets. Now, as we read those few verses, specifically that first verse in verse 15 we begin to see ways in which Jesus is helping us to spot false prophets in our lives. And when we learn how to spot false prophets, it will also help us to learn to spot the true prophets. Not always perfect, but folks in our lives who are trying as best they can to speak life, to speak truth. Now, in this brief instruction in the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus gives us some tools that will be of a great benefit to those of us who are trying to engage in the spiritual battle that we find ourselves in every day, right here, as we're stuck in the suburbs. The first point that I want to share with you today is, is point one. The issue is rarely the issue. That, that's what the word false means. <laughs> you know, it's true, we Christians can fight. Sometimes it's about important things where we have disagreements that are indeed essential. But most of the time, it becomes about things that we'll, we, we just don't like. But the hard part is trying to figure out why we don't like certain things. Because the issue is rarely the issue. I remember in uh, my younger days, a church near where I was living had decided that it was time to replace the carpet in their church. One group in that church decided that the brown carpet wasn't churchy enough. And so they decided that it would be in the best interest of the church if they got a better color, a color like red. I mean, after all, red is the color of the Holy Spirit. It's the color of the blood of our Lord. But unfortunately, the other faction, the other half of the church, decided that the brown carpet was as great a color because it was the color of the earth, of the soil from which God called forth humanity and created us. 
And we need to be careful with red, they would say, because red is also the color of the devil. Well, that church found themselves in such a significant disagreement about the color of the carpet that it split. And the church, the half that left, went down the street, no lie, just down the road, not even a mile, and built another church. And of all things, they named it Grace Church. And I thought that was ironic. You see, the issue is rarely the issue. And it wasn't a mistake that half of the church that continued, that stayed at the old building, went on with their traditional worship that they had done for decades. And Grace Church, just down the road, well, on their first Sunday, they had drums and guitars. The issue is rarely the issue. The color of the Holy Spirit, <laughs> the color of the devil, the color of the martyrs, the color of communism. The issue is rarely the issue. Hang with me. Point two. Beware when the issue is based in fear. Today's text is often used when preachers rise to denounce other preachers or churches, appealing to the most manipulated emotion within every human being. Fear. Just this week at our Council of Elders meetings, one of our elders, Randy Donay, gave the, uh, the devotion and he talked about the overwhelming power that fear can have in our life, distracting us from what God is calling us to do and to be. Like Elder Randy, I always like to pay attention to who is being attacked in the church. Many times, that's where God is leading us. In Scripture, the ideas, the directions, the people who are oftentimes most hated are, well, where God is. Cain and Abel. Abel is attacked, yet it is his offering that pleased the Lord. Moses, as he leads the Hebrews out of the land of bondage, is attacked, yet it was through his ministry that God was leading his people out of slavery and into the land of freedom. The prophet Jeremiah, one of my greatest and most favorite prophetic books in the Hebrew Scriptures, Jeremiah warned that the city of Jerusalem, that God's judgment was inescapable, and he was commanded by the leaders to be silent even to the point where they imprisoned him in a cistern. Jesus, well, we all know that story, don't we? The book of Acts with Peter and John being arrested over and over and over again. And of course, the Apostle Paul, who survived being stoned, was repeatedly beaten and run out of town and ultimately gave his life in service to his Savior. And every single one of those cases... We know that the issue wasn't the issue. And we also know that fear was the driving emotion. And that fear is almost always expressed in anger. Their anger was rooted in fear in all of those stories that I shared with you. The fear of the future, of failure by the Israelites as Moses was trying to lead them. The fear of defeat 
and enslavement in the city of Jerusalem when they railed against the prophet Jeremiah. The fear of the loss of power with the opponents of Jesus. And one of my favorites in Acts chapter 19, verses 21 through 40, the fear of the loss of income from the idol makers because Paul was persuading the people that their gods were false. The issue is really the issue, and fear is often the driving emotion and motivation. Beware of false prophets, Jesus says. All right, I think I got it. When I lived in Washington, D.C. back in the 90s and again in the early 2000s, I could always find prophets preaching on the streets. If you've been there, you might have seen them too. Some of them held up signs that said, The end is near! Repent! Were they false? Well, certainly they probably used a method that wasn't uh, one in which I was familiar with growing up in church. But across town out in front of 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue, there were other prophets as well. Prophets with their own signs that also said, the end is near, that a particular president was going to lead us to our doom before the end of his term, or this bill or that bill would lead to the eventual collapse of this grand experiment known as the Democratic Republic. Were they false? Well, someday, if the Lord doesn't come, if history continues to repeat itself, even our nation will crumble. But here, here in the suburbs, we're far removed from that kind of excitement, aren't we? We're far removed from that kind of fear, and yet there are those who seek to elicit a response from us that is based on falsehood, fueled by fear and that seeks to elicit our anger. Well, even those of us in the suburbs, we're afraid of lots of things. Maybe not the monster that lives in the closet, or even the crime that might be in the streets of some urban areas across our nation. But we are terrified of some things. We're terrified of poverty. And yet our Lord reminds us in Luke 12, 22-24, And Jesus said to His disciples, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, nor about your body, what you will put on. For life is more than food, and the body more than clothing. Consider the ravens, they neither sow nor reap. They have neither storehouse nor barn, and yet God feeds them. Of how much more value are than the birds? Are you than the birds? Sometimes, we are told by false prophets in our midst that that which we should be afraid of is the loss of our security, our safety. And yet God's word in Deuteronomy 31.6 says, Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or terrified because of them. For the Lord your God goes with you. He will never leave you nor forsake you. Sometimes we're told that we need to be afraid that we're going to experience the loss of our social status. And yet, when we are called to live the life of our Lord, of whom it was said in Matthew 20, verse 28, even as the Son of Man came not to serve, be served, but to serve and to give His life a ransom for many. We're told by those that if we don't do what they want us to do, that we might suffer. And many of us are afraid of suffering. 
And yet Paul reminds us in Philippians chapter 1, verse 29, For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in Him, but also suffer for His sake. When we feel the anger coming on in our life, maybe if we could pause and ask the question, what am I afraid of? Fear and anger are everywhere in our culture. And and sometimes it's well-deserved, but other times, and I might even suggest many of the times, it is intended to manipulate us. An effort to control us by false prophets in our midst. Which leads me to my third point. Watch out when they try to look like you and leave you empty. Years ago, I knew a very successful attorney who had made millions helping coal miners collect compensation after they had been diagnosed and, frankly, sentenced to death because of black lung. He wasn't a bad person. As a matter of fact, in one case, he helped me protect a poor woman whose rental house had burned down and her landlord was suing her for rent during the month she had lost everything. The landlord argued that she owed him for the days of that month that the house hadn't burned down, not noting the fact that she had complained multiple times of faulty wiring, sparking light fixtures, and holes in the floor. I I, I liked that lawyer, and I still do. I have a great deal of respect for him. But he owned a house in the town in which I lived, and he also owned a house at the beach. And it was at that house that he kept his Mercedes. While when he went to visit potential clients in the hollers and mountaintops of coal country, he would always drive a broken down sedan with a rebuilt title. I asked him one time why he drove that particular car when he went to call on his clients in the mountains. Preacher, he said, no one wants a lawyer who drives a Mercedes. They want a lawyer who looks like them. And he wasn't an evil guy. He was just stating a fact. We like people who look like us. And even more, we really like people who tell us that we can look like them and that it won't require much effort on our part. You know, the suburbs are filled with places that call themselves Town Center, the Village Green, the Community Commons. They all resonate with us where many of us were born and raised. My own hometown was one where a courthouse, a row of churches, quaint local shops were the backdrop for holiday parades and fall festivals. Local garden clubs, bridge clubs, and book clubs would meet at the churches. That grand brick courthouse was a symbol of wedding licenses and the place where deeds were kept of first-time homebuyers where aging couples would, fire their, would, would file their wills, making sure that each was taken care of after the other was called home. The firehouse played host to the annual rabies vaccination for household pets. And the clothing store? Well, it was owned by Mr. Goodman, who lived in a nicer but still modest home over on Federal Street. And the Snowmar gift shop, where Mrs. Shockley always helped me pick out a gift for my mother and dad that never exceeded five dollars in the suburbs 
where we are, sometimes the false prophets come to us in our town centers, and they seek to mimic community. Hey, they say to us, we're your neighbors. We're your community. And yet those shops aren't owned by Mr. Goodman and Mrs. Shockley. They're chain stores, shops and eateries that I will admit are pretty awesome. But they have one object, one purpose, to make you leave with the dream that you are a better person because of what you bought from them. And your money? Well, that's now on its way to a corporate office in another state, or in some cases, maybe no state at all. Jesus says, beware of them who seek to dress like us, to be sheep, and yet are ravenous wolves. Now, now don't get me wrong. I'm a capitalist, but I'm also a pastor. I know that when you make money, we all make money. Because of your spirit of generosity, you share your gifts with this congregation so that we can do the things that God has called us to do and to be. (laughs) But beware of the false prophet who tries to look like us, who tries to prey on our childhood experiences, and when it's all said and done, leaves our wallets a little emptier. Hey. Like I said when I started, my wife and I love Ikea. But it doesn't define who we are. Now as a congregation, we're about to enter the second phase of our strategic plan and we're looking at what it means how to become a church in this community. A congregation that focuses on the very neighbors who live their lives right next door to this building and this campus. You know, as I have prayed and read, and as many of you have prayed and read, we have heard many great stories of churches who have gone on before us. And even me, I'm inspired by other churches and other cities that saw the false prophets of fake community, of empty relationships, and manipulation of fear and anger among the people. Those churches dreamed about what it would look like for their church to be the town center of their subdivision, the village green of their community, a community common for the people who they lived life with right next door. A place where the building wasn't a church where the community could come, but a community center where a church happens to meet. Now, I know it goes against every aspect of the dominant culture that seeks to cram down our throats what life ought to look like that looks nothing like the life Jesus has called us to do and to be. And you know what? If we're not careful, we can make church a business. Peddling our programs and promising a profitable life, a veritable dispensary of spiritual self-improvement. But as a church, we're called to preach Christ and Him crucified. It is Christ who gives us meaning, not the wares of false prophets. Our self-worth comes from service in the name of Christ, not the constant flash of entertainment that dulls our senses and confuses our attitude of, Lord, I need you, with the all-too-easy Lord, aren't you lucky that I showed up today? 
Man, I could have chosen lots of other things to do, but today I'm here for you. God save us. When false prophets come into conflict with the true prophet, Jesus Christ, man, the gloves come off. The two square off. And we would do well to remember that both are fighting for our souls. But one is fighting to enslave us to fear and to anger, while the other, our Lord, is fighting to set us free to truth and freedom from bondage and sin. I call on you today to surrender all of yourself. Your sense of meaning, your life, your finances, your time, your treasure, your talent for the call of Jesus Christ. Just before I came to record this today, I found myself in a conversation with someone who was saying to me, can you tell us how you live your life for Christ? So I shared with them that for us and our family, living a life for Christ isn't about certain things we do. It's about a culture in our family. Christ is ever-present in every decision we make, whether it's our entertainment, whether it's how we eat, how we dress, how we live our lives in our neighborhood. It's not a box, of, a list of boxes that we check off, and man, if we check off 10% of them, then we get the 10% of the joy of the Lord. It's a lot like being diagnosed with cancer, and the doctor says to you, this is the treatment that we have to do to kill the cancer. And we would say to that doctor, well, if I only do 10% of it, can I still have some sense of improvement over this disease? And the doctor will tell you, the only way to beat this cancer is to do all of this. And the same is true in our life of faith. Until we surrender all of ourselves to Christ, we'll never know the joy. We'll never know the truth of what Christ has brought us. Amen.